Hi, good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, I got a text message from Brad. He says, you're going to teach the class on Sunday the 18th. And my knees buckled and I fell. I've taught before, but it's college, and that's only 20 minutes, and that's college. <laughs> I'm not teaching to a group of peers like you guys, especially this group. You guys are seasoned Christians, and so I'm challenged here today. Um, I started doing my studies um, to prepare, and uh, I wanted to throw in a little um, little commercial to begin with. I have some apps on my phone, and one of them is Skip Heisick, and he's the uh, pastor of the Calvary, uh, Calvary Chapel Church in um, Albuquerque. And uh, he is an amazing, amazing preacher. If you guys get a chance, that's a great app. Uh, in touch with Charles Stanley and David Jeremiah has one. I can't remember the name of his app, but I have it on the phone. So I started drawing in a lot of information from them to try to put together the lesson. So I would encourage you guys, um, that's, those are good resources. Uh, I've entitled the lesson today, Hokmah versus Folly. Okay. The other day I heard that it is not wise to argue with a fool because somebody might walk by and not be able to tell the difference between the two of us. Yeah, are you sure about that? <laughs> That's okay. Now the Bible uses the word fool, uh, folly, foolishness, and fool, foolish 173 times. And Solomon is the uh, primary user of that word when he writes. He wrote Proverbs and we all read Proverbs and have seen how many times he talks about the, what you're supposed to do and not to do. So, um, the, uh, the word fool is obviously just the opposite of the word for wisdom. And uh, the Bible uses the word hokmah, which is a Hebrew word, um, and it is directly in, uh, translated as someone that lives a godly life in a skillful manner. Somebody that is skilled at living a godly life. And a fool is somebody that is just the opposite of that. Um, and uh, Solomon spends a lot of time in Proverbs, uh, as I was saying, and then also in this chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, uh, discerning between the two of them. <clears throat> now when the Bible is talking about a fool, it's not talking about a court jester or somebody with a low IQ um, somebody less in intelligent or silly. It's talking about somebody that is uh, morally deficient. Uh, in some cases, morally bankrupt. Uh, it is basically uh, described as someone who lives for the short-term immediate fulfillment, who is self-indulgent rather than someone who thinks about where their decision will lead tell you a story about a little pig. A little pig was out underneath an old oak tree out in the field and he was eating acorns. And while he was eating acorns he got the idea that he was going to burrow down to the roots of the tree. And as he was burrowing down there was a raven up in the oak tree and he looked down at the pig and he shouted, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Exposing the roots of the tree could kill the tree. And the pig says, I don't care as long as there are acorns. Thank you for the 
golfers clap there. I appreciate <laughs> Most of us in this class don't live that way. Most of us have chose to live for Christ and put Christ as the center of our life, and that is a wise choice. But we all live in a culture where there are outside influences, and there is basically a cultural net that's around us that's just waiting to sneak out there and grab us and draw us in and, and capture us in our sin. So we have to guard our hearts for that. That happened to the first king of Israel, King Saul. And the scriptures say that King Saul was a man that was blessed of God. But nearing the end of his life, he said, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes was written in four uh, discourses, and this chapter 10 and 11 is the fourth discourse from King, King Saul. Chapter 12 is his conclusion. But uh, in verses, or in uh, chapters 10 and 11, uh, King Saul is trying to summarize everything that he had seen under the sun. And you see that repeated as you read through Ecclesiastes. And everything that he had done and tried, and the mistakes that he had made. And right here in chapter uh, 10 of Ecclesiastes, he starts to contrast the fool from the, the wise. And he, let's break down these 10 verses into four categories. I put them up on the board here. Number one is character. It's the folly of the unchecked temptation. Number two is your lifestyle, the folly of the unrighteous temperament. Number three is your relationships, the folly of an uncontrolled temper. Number four is your employment, the folly of unplanned labor. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 um, is written in a very poetic manner. So when you read it, it's not, it's almost like it's written in code. And for us to understand that, we have to understand how the Hebrews write. And they would write their poetry not in words like uh, in our American language where we try to rhyme sounds or rhyme the words, but what they do is they rhyme um, thoughts and concepts and they'll write um, the, the ideas. And then what they will do is use those like metaphors They'll put the metaphor at the beginning of their poetry and then build on it to make their point. And they call that uh, Hebrew parallelism. And we use metaphors too, but a lot of times we'll say blah, 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 like, and then we'll use our metaphor. They'll use their metaphor and then ex ex you know, expand upon it from there. So as we read, that will help us understand and decode how he's writing some of this stuff. Um, the, in chapter 1, um, this is, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the first one is um, the folly of the unchecked temptation. Verse 1 <clears throat> starts out, dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. So there the dead flies uh, putrefy the perfumer's ointment is your metaphor. The expansion is, so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Here's the background. In the ancient world, they would take sap or bark or other types of spices that they could gather from aloes, um, calamine, uh, cinnamon, frankincense, and they would blend it in a large vat of oil. 
and in time the oil would take on the sweet scent of the ingredient that they put in with it. And what would happen is, is that over, you know, they would purify that and then people would use that oil as basically like a deodorant or a perfume to hide body odor. They could also put it around the house. My wife puts uh, oil in a little metal dish and puts a candle underneath it and the house always smells good. So. Um, but uh, what happens is, is the Middle East is known for having a lot of flies. Um, they have areas that have just unbelievable amounts of flies. And the flies would, maybe a fly would get a hold of that scent, would smell it, would fly over to the oil, and would get in the oil. And would get captured by the oil and would struggle and die. And what was happened to that one body laying in that giant vat of perfuming oil, would that it would uh, start to decay and the oil around the, the body that's decaying would start to ferment and bubble and start to put off a foul scent. But in a very short period of time, that scent will get throughout the oil and will ruin the whole batch. Just one fly could ruin that whole, that whole bath uh, of, of oil. And the Hebrews would call that the fly of death. The application here is uh, the second part of that verse is, So a little folly does one to a respect um, with wisdom and honor. In other words, a person can build up years and years of reputation of honor, respect, good character and wisdom, and one bad step can, can just destroy that entire reputation. And a good, a good example of that might be the police officer that's worked for years and years and years for the, for the department and then he gets pulled over one night for drunk driving and he's just destroyed his entire career. Here's one that you guys might be able to identify before I finish it is the politician that's caught with the uh, intern in an inappropriate uh, relationship. Now that will go down in history. Or how about the televangelist that is caught with a prostitute when he's away in business? Do you guys know who that is? Or here's one. Um, how about King David? What name goes with King David almost synonymously? Bathsheba. Now that happened 3,000 years ago. And it's, an inevitable, it's inevitable for us to, to remember her with him. The point, uh, temptation is common to all of us. And everybody is vulnerable. And that the unchecked... Um, Temptation leads to, can lead to ruin. Here's a challenge um, that I want, I want to put out there for everybody. Um, how well do each one of you guys know your body and know your appetites? And how well do each one of you know your mind and your weaknesses? What is your Achilles heel? Some of us have 10 or 15 of them. If you're like me, you ignore the signs, or I have. And my challenge <clears throat> is that you sit down with God this week and identify your tripping points. <coughs> That's my challenge. King Solomon writes about this in the book of the Song of Solomon. <clears throat> Watch out for the little foxes that can ruin the vines. Temptation unchecked can lead to folly. Now, the Bible says to flee temptation, and that probably reminds all of us of the story of Joseph. 
right? Potiphar's wife wanted to take him to bed. He didn't only flee temptation, he streaked. She had a hold of his clothes when he ran out of there. But he was going to get away from that situation. I don't know if any of you know, have heard of Wilbur Chapman, but he was an evangelist in, 18, in the 1850s. And this is what he said. He said, anything that dims my vision of Christ, takes away my taste for Bible study, cramps my prayer life, or makes Christian life difficult, is wrong for me. As a Christian, I must turn away from it. Those are some wise words. So let's repeat verse 1. Dead flies putrefy the pufirmer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Okay, the second one here is the lifestyle. It's the folly of the unrighteous temperament. Verse 2 and 3, A wise man's heart is in his right hand, but the fool's heart is in his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. <clears throat> this describes the unbeliever. <clears throat> it isn't like the first guy that just lives a life trying to be, you know, build up a reputation, and then he trips and he gets into folly. This is a guy that wallows in sin. This is the unbeliever. He loves sin. This is his first nature. This is what he lives for. What's the popular saying? If it feels good, do it. There you go. Now in this, uh, the verse here, it says uh, the word heart. And obviously we all know that that's not talking about the organ that pumps with the right and left ventricle. It were t it's talking about the essence of who you are. It's talking about your center. It's talking about what defines you. <clears throat> and Solomon says here, it says, to guard your heart with all diligence, for it is the wellspring of your life. Also in this verse, there's the word hand. And in the ancient world, when they would write, there was writings, they would use the word hand as a metaphor for good and evil. <clears throat> now, I know it talks about right hand and left hand, so left-handed people, please don't get offended by this. This is ancient world stuff. <clears throat> but in the ancient world, most people, and today, most people are right-handed. And so the right hand is more dexterous, it's more reliable, it's more accurate. It's our primary hand, and that's what we use. The left hand is less reliable, less under control. It's uh, less accurate. And so when they developed the metaphor, the right hand was a metaphor or a description of uh, a righteous life or what's good. The left hand was considered to be evil. That's more metaphorically, obviously. Now, the word sinister comes from a Latin word directly translated as on the left hand. So that's where they get that. <clears throat> For years I thought that this description was about our current political parties. <laughs> But I don't think Solomon was trying to forecast that to me. <laughs> so the Bible repeatedly uses this metaphor. Um, David says in Psalm 16, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. 
And again, he writes in Psalms, Because you, O Lord, are at my right hand, pleasures abound. And in Hebrews, I haven't been able to figure out why they can't figure out who the writer is. I haven't figured it out, though. <laughs> After death, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Most High. And then Paul even wrote about the early church extending the right hand of fellowship to the body of believers. So it's a, it's a theme or a, a metaphor that's used throughout the body to describe this uh, concept. <clears throat> so the right hand is to live a righteous life, and the left hand is to live a life with a disposition or tendency or a leaning to bend to evil. So is it easy to spot a fool? <clears throat> I think a lot of us can get in public and watch somebody and we can tell if they're a Christian or a non-Christian. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us can speak churchies being a Christian or a non-Christian also. So sometimes they're hard to spot. But all you have to do is ask that person about their knowledge and life with Jesus Christ and it'll become apparent. David says, The fool will say in his heart, there is no God. But did you guys know that the direct trans translation of that from the Hebrew is, the fool will say in his heart, no God. The word there is was put in by the interpreters. So that reminds me of maybe going to the local, well, for us, it's the Naughty Pine, right? Go get a cup of coffee. And every time Carla comes by, you know, she's filling that cup, cup up and we're drinking, it fills it up. After two or three cups of coffee, we put our hand over the top of that coffee cup. We think, Carla, no more. No coffee. We're not saying categorically coffee doesn't exist. We're just saying we don't want it. And that's what they're saying here. The fool says in his heart, no God. That's pretty bold. Everybody is born into this world in need of salvation. Earlier, I think two weeks ago, Brad read in, chap read in chapter 4 or 5, and I was sitting over here and it kind of struck me that even uh, Solomon said that everybody has been marked in eternity. And what he's saying there is that we have an eternal soul, we have an eternal need for God, and we all know it, Christian or non-Christian. And we come to that point where we say, no God. And that's a fool. That's number two. So let's read uh, verses two and three again after that explanation. The wise man, the wise man's heart is in his right hand, but the fool's heart is in his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. Number three is relationships. And we have the folly of the uncontrolled temper. I don't know if any of you can relate to the first two. I think we can a little bit. But I know that number three, maybe more of us can relate to this one. I'll read verse four. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. For conciliation pacifies great offenses. Now the ruler <clears throat> could be anybody. You know, you're talking about the ancient world, but I think in our world we can apply that to the president, the governor, the police officer, our boss, us guys, maybe our wives. <laughs> <laughs> or that could be that one uh, 
manager that's right over the top of us that's got a very short fuse and he springs at a moment without thinking and without provocation he lets us have it even though we don't deserve it and what's human nature I quit right turn your resignation or you start thinking that way and what he's saying here he says we should we shouldn't do that we shouldn't respond in haste like that uh, remember that he has written this in poetry so we need to read the next three verses to get the essence of what he's trying to say here and he kind of shifts gears but what he's trying to do is to go back and give you an explanation there is an evil that I have seen under the Sun as an error proceeds from a ruler folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in lowly places I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants now Solomon was basically the leader of the Israelites the nation of Israel but he was also had great impact on the other countries around him and he had seen people put in places that were really incompetent probably other kings sons probably other managers and what happens is a lot of times is that those guys get in a prominent position and they'll bring in all their buddies who are equally equally incompetent and now you have a whole bunch of incompetence going on so what you're he's saying there is that you have incompetent people in high places making high decisions and we've probably all seen this that when those people get frustrated they don't know what to do they respond with loud voice and clanging and all that this uh, is kind of a uh, interesting set of uh, uh, verses here because Solomon's own son who replaced him King Rehoboam did the exact thing that he's talking about here when Solomon died the government was still there and they brought Rehoboam up but all of the advisors to now believe this Solomon had advisors that's pretty amazing and they were all there when King Rehoboam was there <laughs> and uh, what happened was is that King Solomon had put a pretty heavy yoke or heavy tax or a work burden on the people of Israel at the time and but their nation flourished and they were pretty tolerant of it with him but when Rehoboam came into power uh, they asked Rehoboam can you lighten our yoke and uh, Rehoboam brought in the counselors from King Solomon and asked him what should I do and and uh, they told him that they should lighten the yoke and he didn't like that response so I want to pick it up in 1st Kings chapter 12 what he did he brought in his friends and got counsel from them Alan but he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him who stood before him and he said to them what advice do you give how should we answer this people who have spoken to me saying lighten the yoke which your father put on us then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him saying thus you said excuse me thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you saying your father made our yoke heavy but you make it lighter on us thus you shall say to them my little finger shall be thinner than my father's waist and now whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you I will add to your yoke 
father chases you with whips, but I shall chastise you with scourges. So Rehoboam rejected the counsel, the good counsel of Solomon's court that had been established before him. And he brought in his incompetent friends that he grew up with and asked them their advice, and they gave him the exact opposite advice of the council. And he went along with their advice. And he brought the Israelites back in, and he roughly responded to them, added to their yoke. And do we all know what happened to the nation of Israel right after that? They got into civil war and they split. So it's pretty amazing that Solomon would take that three verses and that same thing happened to him. I wonder if God was... God must have been listening to him. So, hey, this will be a good way to get Israel going here. <clears throat> so let's go back to verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, talking about an incompetent person, somebody with a short fuse, it's not thinking about what they're doing. So not leave your post for conciliation pacifies great defenses. So it is not wise to respond with anger to anger. Don't quit in a huff and walk off. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, outside noisy, inside empty. That says volumes to, to this. Uh, how, we how, how should we handle a bad leader? Uh, well, in verse 4 it says, For conciliation pacifies great offenses. Now, uh, Solomon writes in Proverbs 15.1 that a soft answer will turn away wrath, but a harsh word will stir up anger. And then Solomon wrote again in Proverbs 16.14, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but the wise man will appease it. And again he writes in ch uh, chapter 25, verse 15, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Paul talks about taming the tongue as being next to impossible. But here's something that I think you guys will kind of uh, enjoy. Uh, if you uh, turn to Psalms 39, I want to read something to you. It's very interesting. Now, this is King David, and he's giving us an account of uh, something that he did, I suppose. Psalms 39. I said, I will guard my ways lest, the sin, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. What David's saying is he's getting ready to go into a meeting. I think we've all said this to ourselves. I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to hold my comment. I'm not going I'm, I'm just going to listen there. I'm going to sit there. As I was musing with silence, I held my peace even from the good. So far so good. He hasn't said anything yet. And my sorrow was stirred in me. Uh-oh. My heart was hot within me. Oh boy. While I was musing, he was starting to really ponder and think about what this person was saying to him. The fire burned within me. <laughs> oh no, here he goes. Then I spoke with my tongue. You ever done that? I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to hold my comments to myself. 
and your eyes start to dilate, your blood pressure goes up, heartbeat starts to race, and blah, you say something, you think, oh, what did I just say? You gave them a piece of your mind that you can't afford to give. Solomon says to live that way is not wise. Uh, Winston Churchill, we all know who that is. And there's a lot of history about that man. And there are a lot of uh, documented uh, times when he would banter back and forth with a Lady Astor, who was a member of the British Parliament. And Lady Astor and him did not like each other. And a lot of times they would uh, banter back and forth and cast out... Uh, uh, like cuts or slams at each other in public so the public would know that they didn't like each other. And one day Lady Astor said, Winston, if you were my husband, I would put arsenic in your tea. And Winston fired back, if I were your husband, I would surely drink it. <laughs> There's another occasion when they were at a dinner party and it was a public uh, speaking address and they'd all been eating and drinking and stuff and they're going out of the building and they're walking down some stairs and it was obvious that Winston had had too much to drink and Lady Oster thought that she had an opportunity to really get him. And she yelled out at a loud voice in front of everybody for him to hear, Winston, you are drunk. And he quickly fired back, Bessie, you are ugly. And tomorrow I will be sober. <laughs> we all like that kind of stuff because you know what? We want to fire back when people get mad at us, don't we? Uh, we all say that a great defense is a good offense, right? I mean, we all heard that. All, uh, Solomon is saying that we shouldn't live that way. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, uh, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a college called Kenyon College, and they did a test led by a Les Gibson, where they would uh, bring in a large group of people, and individually they would take them aside and they'd start yelling at them. And they found that it is next to impossible not to respond to somebody's yelling with yelling back. So when uh, Les Gibson wrote his, uh, his comments about the test study, uh, he said, he referred back to this, uh, the Psalms of Solomon, about how you should respond to somebody with a soft tone. He said that you can control the destiny of a conversation by the tone of your voice and the volume of your voice and how you come across to somebody. That's pretty powerful stuff. I was talking to Michelle about that earlier this week. She's a sixth grade teacher, and on uh, open house, she starts enlisting parents and cousins, aunts, and uncles to come in and start helping uh, uh, parent helpers in her class. And many times, the first time somebody volunteers, they'll walk into the class. Class is all studying. They're all facing Michelle. They'll open the door. I'm here. They don't, they don't know classroom etiquette, but Michelle, without any hesitation, will say, okay, thank you. You can stack the papers in the back and put them in the cubby holes. And they, okay. They've learned a lesson in a matter of seconds, and it's all in the tone of her voice controlling the conversation. 
So let's read uh, verses 4 through 7 again. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. For conciliation passes great offenses. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. As an error proceeds from a ruler, folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in low places. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. Number four is plan ahead. I'm sorry, I'm down in conclusions. <coughs> Number four is employment, folly of the unplanned labor. I'll read verses 8 through 10. He who digs a pit will fall in it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stone may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If an axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. Now in verse 8, <clears throat> he who digs a pit will fall into it. Talks about a guy that's digging a hole, didn't take any precautions. Maybe put a ladder down in there so he can get out. But then he gets out up on top of the curb. He starts telling somebody about his pit that he, and he starts talking about it. Next thing you know, he's in the hole. I'm a, I'm a contractor uh, for a living, and Cal OSHA has said that anything over four feet has to have a barrier. You have to have a, a ladder to get out of it. And that barrier has to take a vertical force hit or strike of 200 pounds. So Cal, Cal OSHA is planning ahead. This guy didn't plan ahead. The second part of verse 8 says, And he who breaks through walls will be bitten by serpents. Oh, has everybody seen Indiana Jones? When he's down in that thing in the ground, and they got snakes coming out of the eye of those guys that are in the walls and stuff. That's the Middle East. It's hard for us to relate to that because we don't have that many snakes and stuff around here. Although, when I was younger, I lived on the east side of town out in the country, and we had a big dog door. Now, we lived in the country. We had 400 acres out in the sticks. I didn't have neighbors. So we had a dog door, and my German Shepherd would come in and out of that dog door. One day, my mom is sitting in the kitchen, and she turned around to get some milk, and there was a bull snake gotten in the house. On another occasion, I have a friend, his name is Rick Shazam, and he owns Becca Construction, and he and his wife built a house uh, down Porterville Highway on 20 acres, they, they like horses and all, and they just moved in their brand new house, only a couple days had gone by, and she's in the kitchen working, and she turns and looks into the living room, and out of the uh, fireplace is a four and a half foot gopher snake. <laughs> So in the Middle East, they build most of their homes out of stone or block. But there would get crevices in there, and the snakes would get into the walls. And they would find themselves a cool place to hide, maybe a secure place. They might nest in there. And a contractor like me, not thinking ahead, might be saying, hey, let's open up this wall here, make this living room go into the bedroom here, we'll expand the area. So he goes in there, and he starts breaking through the walls, not looking for the snakes. The guy's not planning ahead. Verse 9, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them. We may not understand what that means, but if you go to Israel and you go to the uh, Solomon's quarry, what they have is they've got, um, basically when they quarry, they quarry like a tunnel. 
and they'll go in there and they had some way to drill or chisel deep cores in four or five locations and they would fill those up with the wood that would expand if it got wet. And then they would soak those, that wood and the wood would expand and cause a crack to form and they would put logs underneath that stone and it would, it would fall down on the logs and then they could wheel it outside and then finish cutting it the size that they needed to cut it. So they're pretty ingenuitive for ancient people. But what he's saying here is that he who quarries stone may be hurt by them. The guy that's crawling underneath to put the logs on that thing or the guy that's up there putting the water on the, on the wood needed to be smart enough to get out of the way before the, the wood would expand enough to cause the crack and the block would fall on them. So that's what that means. We can understand that. <clears throat> he who splits wood may be endangered by it. Now, if you have a dull axe and you start striking wood, what happens? The wood splinters, right? It doesn't, you don't get a clean cut. It just, it's like banging it with a bar. It just starts splintering. You get something caught in your eye or you can get hurt. And a, <clears throat> a dull edge, um, basically, you know, some big old brute guy says, well, I'm just going to swing the axe harder. Well, that's futile. That causes for harder work and a longer day and less productivity. <clears throat> There's a popular saying that says, don't work harder, work smarter. And the application here is not to live haphazardly, but to plan. Plan your work. Know what you're doing. Don't just go to work. Live by the second or the moment. In construction, I can tell you, cell phones have made construction. You'd think it'd make it easier? The lack of planning. All my subcontractors, they show up, okay, what do I got to do today? They call in for materials, and by 10 o'clock, the materials arrive and the morning's a waste. Cell phones, they're handy, but they're, they're, they're not helpful. We've lost the skill of planning in the construction industry. <clears throat> Some people live their lives without any planning at all. They shoot their arrows out for their life and then they go and they find their arrow and then they draw a big bullseye around it. And they look at it and they say, yep, that's what I wanted to do. But that's not planning. That's not smart. So Solomon says that that is not a wise way to live. Paul says in Ephesians 5, See then that your walk, you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Plan ahead. Nobody lives in a house without fire insurance. I, I don't think that when you plan, <clears throat> that if your plans change, we should go into worry. That's a whole new lesson, and I hope I don't have to do that one. <laughs> Yesterday, we spent much of the day, uh, starting at about 5 o'clock in the morning, um, moving my daughter to Fresno. She's starting Fresno State this week. And she got a nice little apartment, and we got her the brand-new bedspread and all the stuff. And so when we were at the end of the day, we were taking pictures around, and Michelle noticed that there was only one decorative picture on the wall that she had put up. And they don't let you put a nail in there. They make you put this funny little sticky thing in there that pulls the paint off when you try to pull it off anyways. So, and this, 
the words that my daughter picked to put on the wall was make each day count. There wasn't a picture of me on there. <laughs> she said, make each day count. Pretty wise for a 20-year-old, 21-year-old. So let's get into our conclusion here. Character, <clears throat> number one, look for what trips us up. And again, I challenge you guys to spend some time with God and ponder the things that trip you up. Magazine rack, a TV station, a conversation, stress, and set up some boundaries. Protect yourself. Guard your hearts. Number two is lifestyle. It's the unrighteous temperament. Guard your hearts. Most of us are Christians. Most of us have chose God. I believe everybody in this class has. But I believe that we can get into seasons of our life when we are not living for God. And we indulge in sin. Even Paul wrote in Romans, and I wish I knew exactly the topic he was writing about. He says, why do I do what I know I shouldn't do? Relationships. The folly of the uncontrolled temper. <clears throat> control the tone. Control the tone. Don't respond to anger with anger. Take a breath. We have been charged as Christians to spread peace and harmony. I think that's what we need to do. Number four is employment. The folly of unplanned labor. Plan your labor. Plan ahead. I'm speaking to the choir here. Plan for the future. The Bible says that it's smart to be a good steward. And Jesus Christ gave us plenty of examples of that. And if your axe needs sharpened, read the Bible. Go to God and seek wise counsel. And number five, make each day count. Choose chokmah and live a skillful life for God.